0: Hi, Greg Perry, This Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Episode 417, The Modern Movement, 1920 to 1965. The modern movement was a self-conscious style created by architects and theorists, inspired by a need to break with the past and to express the spirit of a new machine age. In its aim to change society's attitude to design, it was not universally universally popular. Most modern movement houses in both the United States and Britain tended to be individual architect design residences, and few developers were prepared to risk speculative building in the same style. So by the early 1900s, leading German and Austrian designers, had reacted against excessive ornament and laid the foundations for an architecture that relied on space, proportion, and smooth surfaces. One of the first, the Australian Adolf Luce, spent three years in the United States from 1893 to 1896. His critical essay, Ornament in Crime, 1908, rejected ornamentation as degenerate, and his interior designs were instrumental in forming the modern movement. Frank Lloyd Wright, in the United States, was also an important influence on the movement, with his simplified horizontal forms. Following World War I, the turmoil of Europe encouraged avant-garde movements in all sorts of arts, and a distinctive cubic architecture emerged from the De Steele Group in Holland and the Le Corbusier in France. Britain was slow to respond to these influences, though. So although Le Corbusier's Verun Architecture was published in English in 1927, the outlines have five points of the new architecture. Houses on Pillars horizontal windows, free plan, free facades, and flat roofs. Some of the earliest flat-roofed houses in Britain were small, relatively unimpressive groups of workers' houses in Braintree, Essex, built in 1919 by Critels, a firm of window manufacturers in Britain. So in around 1924, Krytels went on to develop a garden village of Silver End in Essex, which says some of the first recognizably modernist houses in Britain. The imaginative interiors designed in 1925 by Raymond McGrath at Fenella, a refurbished Victorian house at Cambridge, are acknowledged as being the forerunner of modern modernism. Throughout the 1930s though, both the United States and Britain The distinction between the modern movement proper and popularized versions of it, variously labeled as modern, half-modern, or jazz-modern, are hard to make. The differences may be found less in physical appearance than in the intentions and attitudes of the designer and client. Since modernism aimed at a new way of life, with increased sunlight, fresh air in contact with nature, all of which were already taken for granted by most middle-class suburban Britons and Americans. Perhaps for these reasons, modernism was slow to make converts in both countries, which already had more sophisticated traditions of domestic design and lifestyle than continental Europe. Nonetheless, the imagery of health and cleanliness was one of modernism's main selling points, and the elimination of moldings and ornamentation could be justified as a way of avoiding dirt and reducing housework. Less appropriate to to the domestic scale were modernism's structural innovations, and many houses were treated as experiments in concrete and other materials that were quite unjustified functionally. The lack of traditional weatherproofing details created problems of maintenance and many modernist houses have subsequently been much altered. So in Britain, only some 300 modernist houses were ever built, mostly in the suburbs where they're quite the misfit. Their original owners were often suspected of communism or even nudism. In the United States, modernist houses were also a minority. Frank Lloyd Wright spans the whole period without fitting into it even remotely, neatly. His famous house, Falling Water, 1935, in western Pennsylvania, with its horizontal lines of smooth concrete, <clears throat> was the closest he got to the modern movement. In California, Irving Gill made fascinating experiments with prefabricated concrete construction before 1914 and arrived independently at a style similar to Adolf Luce. Later, the Australian Rudolf Schindler, who began his American career in Chicago, built the Lovell Beach House 1925 at Newport Beach, California, a revolutionary concrete structure. Schindler had gone 30% over budget so when his client, a doctor who advocated nudism, wanted another house, he went to a fellow Austrian immigrant, Richard Neutra. Neutra's Loa House, which was the event of 100% over budget, is another landmark in the development of California modernism, so no one could keep anything within constraints. So on the East Coast, the Swiss-born William Lazar was a pioneer in modernistic architecture, but the diffusion of the modern movement had to await the arrival of exiles from Nazi Germany, Walter Gorbius, Marcel Breuer, Ludwig von Rohe, and others at the end of the 1930s. Their work continued to be influenced into the 1950s, partly through their teaching activities, but modernism remained a minority style amid American suburban eclecticism. In Britain, in the 1950s, a new generation of architects labeled New Brutalist, whose style, modernism of the 1940s. They returned to the pioneer works in the 1920s for inspiration, combined with the continuing influence of Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe. Texture was reintroduced to materials and heavily Overstructured forms were preferred. The opportunities for new brutalism were mainly in public housing, yet it was here that it was often seen as un- unobtainable and contributed to the widespread disillusion with modernism in the 1970s. Although many architects have continued to work within the modernistic tradition, it effect- effectively ended around 1975 since when its influence in domestic design has again been restricted to a handful of individual homes. So let's talk about the modern movement with doors. The modern movement sought to eliminate superfluous detail and to achieve broad, unified surfaces. This desire coincided with the popularization of plywood, which revolutionized the door. The thin layers of wood, which were bonded together under pressure, produced flush doors with no panels or moldings, and the layers could be built up so their total weight was equal to that of a solid wood traditional door. Plywood was used for both external and internal doors. Internal sliding doors were popular in the United States. In Britain in the 1920s, a metal-faced plywood was developed by the Venesta Company. Glazed doors also became very popular. As front doors and as garden doors. In apartments, they were used to integrate living spaces with balconies. Doors leading to the outdoor areas were often metal-framed with wire-reinforced glass panes. In Britain, this was known as Georgian wired glass, surely one of the most inappropriate product descriptions in the history of architecture. So by the late 1930s, Hardwood frame front doors with large glazed panels. These were extremely popular. It became fashionable for doors to have a redisceuced, curved corners. This type of door continued to be produced during the post war period. Door fittings were kept to a minimum, and the letterbox mail slot was often set to a panel flanking the door to preserve the unity of the surface. Windows of the Modern Movement. Fresh air and maximum sunlight were modernistic prerequisites. Architects designed large windows which ideally formed a continuous element with an outside wall. Living areas had windows, some on sliding runners that rose from ground to ceiling. Picture windows were introduced to frame views. Some windows could fold away completely like a concertina others were able to be wound down into the sill frames were generally made of steel but wood became acceptable in the late 1930s in england this was due to a scandinavian influence in the united states walter gropus was also using wood and experimenting by recessing the window so that the overhang lintel controlled the amount of absorbed sunshine in england Aero Goldfinger's photobolalic screen introduced more daylight into a room by having what was in effect two windows on top of one another. The smaller top one was recessed so that the ledge was created over the lower window. The ledge was painted white and reflected more light into the room. Mass-produced windows were also manufactured in England by crittles, The panes were horizontal rectangles, opening as side-hung or top-hung casements. A small degree of decoration was provided by a V-shaped glazing bars. Curved corner windows became a symbol of the speculative builder's interpretation of modernism. So let's talk about walls of the modern movement. So one of the identifying characteristics of the first phase of modernism was the elimination of pattern and texture in walls. Smooth plaster was in vogue. The main modification was the use of plywood linings in doors, rooms, and studies. Occasionally, murals appeared, painted in a vignette-type style. Glass bricks were used by some architects to admit just a tad more light. Room dividers were popular in apartments with open-plan layouts. In the United States, Frank Lloyd Wright continued to use stone and brick textures. Even in his most modern house, Falling Water in Pennsylvania 1935, the modern movement's appreciation of texture was changed by the innovative use of contrasting plaster with rough brick and rubble stonework throughout a theme developed initially by Le Corbusier. The effect of this change in style was barely perceptible in England, where, even in the 1950s, rubble work was considered to be way too folksy. Regular materials like brick and concrete blocks were highly preferred, although the bricks might be roughly laid with deep mortar joints. Pine tongue and groove boarding replaced plywood paneling. There was a striking revival in wallpaper design. Different related patterns were mixed in one room, often with black linear designs on pastel backgrounds in living areas, and culinary designs in the kitchen. In the 1960s, Hessian became very popular. Ceilings of the Modern Movement The ceiling is perhaps the most unpromising area of the modern house. The very presence of a cornice or ceiling rose medallion could be enough to disqualify the whole house from this category totally. Ceilings were sometimes painted in white gloss paint to add reflection. Some incorporated eclectic ceiling heating, an innovation aimed at removing all visible evidence of appliances, but which was found to be ineffective and uncomfortable. The doctrinaire discipline of modernism discourage any ceiling decoration. However, in 1929, at the very beginning of the English movement, Raymond McGrath broke the rules at Fenella. His conversation of a Victorian house in Cambridge, it has a three-sided vault of glass in the hall, leading to the groin vault in the plywood, originally covered in silver leaf and an etched glass dome in the dining room. Post war modernism introduced a more organic style of architecture, and ceilings were allowed to follow a less rigid line. So, in the United States, wooden boarded ceilings became quite popular, often, often as a continuation of the wall surface. Varnished pine was frequently used. Generally, there was a more sculptural approach, and Philip Johnson's guest house at New Canaan. Connecticut with its twin shallow vaults supported by slender columns foreshadows, quote, post Floors of the Modern Movement The modernist attitude toward patterned services is reflected in the design and treatment of floors. Stark elegance could only be achieved with a minimum of decorative distraction. What is the most commonly used material? Floors are generally of dark, polished hardwood, laid as boards or parquet. There would often be a rug with a bold, abstract design, and the wooden floor would be seen as a border in itself. Wall-to-wall carpets were an expensive luxury and tended to be confined to the principal rooms of grand houses, even when they made little impact until the period was well advanced. For economy, plain linoleum laid on a cement screed where plywood was generally used. In Britain, an exception to the deliberately unpatterned approach can be seen at Fenella, the Victorian house in Cambridge, refurbished by the architect-designer Raymond McGrath in 1929, where the hall and dining room were experiments in inlaid indolorium, a rubber flooring material, thought to be superior of linoleum. It was the next linoleum. But for kitchens and hall, quarry tiles are common. Cork tiles or linoleum are found in bathrooms or, very occasionally, mosaics. In a few modernist houses, cork tiles were used throughout. Stone floors laid in blocks or as random crazy paving were an option most often explored in the United States. In the modernistic period in Britain, brick floors are seen. Fireplaces of the Modern Movement In spite of the availability of alternative forms of heating, fireplaces, as they have continued to be, remained popular. W. H. Oden wrote in a letter to Lord Byron, 1937, Preserve me above all from central heating. It may be D. H. Lawrence." apocalypse, but I prefer a room that's got a real focus. Even modernist architects agreed, however, the architectural form of the fireplace was greatly simplified. A plain stone surround set flush with the wall was common in the 1930s, sometimes with a little infill. Rougher surfaces for the infill section, such as flinterstone, stone, became popular in the later 30s. Sometimes panels of stone or metal were set into the chimney breast in an asymmetrical composition, and built-in bookcases were lined up with the fireplace. A recessed space for storage of wood was also provided. The United States was the real home of the modernist hearth, and the mythology was created through the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. Marcel Brower and others, taking up the entire wall of the room. The fireplace became the focal point built of rugged stonework. Where solid fuel was no longer used, electric fires were often installed in the wall. Stylish surrounds were made from colored opaque glass or stainless steel. In the 1950s, a freestanding fire with its flue pipe connected directly to the chimney became a possibility. This heat-saving device was popular in smaller houses. And that, uh, well, in part one, the historic preservationist, Greg Perry, signing off. Um, The Modernist Movement. Thanks, everyone, for listening.